I think you become great, exceptional, when you figure out the intersection of what you deeply care about that you will fight so incredibly hard for and you connect it to what you're naturally great at. And that's when you become just unstoppable. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. Have you been here before? I was supposed to come to the Christmas party, but I was out of town. But you I haven't were? been here before. Yeah. Who invited you to the Christmas party? I know Matt Moon through outside of work. You do? Somewhat. You're kidding. Not extensively, but somewhat. Oh, come so, on. Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> through some of the work I do for Jasur and through family, friend circles and things like that. I uh, just gotten to know him through the community. And I don't know. This feels like a funny start. So we can start another no, way. <laughs> there's no, there's no such thing. There's yeah. no, we're not even, it just rolls. Okay. We're just rolling. All right. We're just rolling. Yeah. We're just rolling. Um, I've been very active in getting our community engaged yeah. when it comes to supporting education for Syria. Yeah. And he and several other friends are just very active in trying to find good causes to support. So I've gotten to know him that way. That's so cool. And But you're not Syrian, correct? I am Syrian. You are Syrian. I am and fully Syrian. People wouldn't guess with my red hair and my complexion, but fully Syrian. You look atypical for a Syrian? I don't. I used to think when I was younger, and I don't have statistics on this, yeah. but that the Syrian population had a higher penetration of red-haired people than, yeah. than the global population, just based on observation. What about you have blue eyes? Not very Syrian, but there is a high proportion of people in the because country. Because I have blue eyes and I'm Persian, and not very many people in Iran have blue yeah, eyes. yeah. Huh. By the way, my, I'm married to an Iranian, so my kids are half Persian, half uh, Syrian. No way. Yeah. You're married to an Iranian? I, I have am. no idea. It's an ex- it's extraordinary combination that does, I'm very proud does of. Does he cook? His mom cooks His extremely mom. well. How, how well? <laughs> extremely well. And she just moved to New York, but we loved our Saturdays at her house when she'd bring the whole family together and we'd have Fes and June and oh. Gorma Sabzi and all the wonderful Iranian dishes. Do you love it? I absolutely love it. I mean, no matter what background you come from, it's hard not to love Persian food. It's I'm, so I'm being true. serious. And Persian culture. And Persian culture. It's so rich. What um, do you love about it? I love, again, the of course, the family being at the center, which is very similar to the Arabic culture I grew up with. But I also just love the fun associated with it. There's constant you know, entertainment and big parties and love of life. And so I love that very much. That's true. And in Syrian culture, is family the center of... Everything as well? It's the center of everything. Like sometimes maybe arguably too much, at least in my culture. I grew up just never questioning any of it (laughs) and respecting and embracing it all or a lot of it actually. And it is so at the center of everything. Yeah. My dad till this day will call me literally and say, come home tomorrow (laughs) because he wants to see me. And I- Home where? Well, they're between Michigan and Florida, not Syria. But um, tomorrow, well, I'm going. I'm going on Monday because I got the call, so I, I get a lot of those calls. But um, family's so at the center of the way I grew up. My mom, I always joke with her because her friends, her whole life, are her family, and I always thought that's just how it is. Growing up, and then I was like, oh no, that's just a Persian thing. It's also an immigrant thing. So when I got married, we got married in Italy. None of my family from Syria could come because of all the challenges in Syria. And my parents' closest friends from the US, who are all Middle Eastern, showed up at the wedding. And I was reflecting that it was so much like family. So I think it's both the Middle Eastern thing, but it's also an immigrant thing as well. Why do you think it's an immigrant because thing? Because as immigrants come into this country, 
they're building the depth of that network to stand by them and help them with the ties and integration and just adjusting to life here. And so you become that you those experiences are so transformational and so challenging that the friendships become so meaningful as people work through some of those challenges together. Right. And maybe the default friendship towards family makes a lot of sense because they just trust them. Like there's an implicit trust there where that sense of community is so important trying to survive in a new country. Surviving in a new country. It's so hard. And you have somebody you have a connection to, which is so magical given you're meeting so many new people and so many new experiences. And so that bond is so strong. Yeah. How old were you when you moved my here? Pa- I was born here. My parents moved five years before we were all born. Yeah. So we were all born here. We spent a lot of time in Damascus growing up. So I built a lot of strong ties with Syrian culture. And so I feel very fortunate to have had the strength of both cultures and the depth of appreciation across both. Yeah. So cool. When you were growing up, did you have brothers and sisters? I'm the oldest of four. Oldest of four. What was conversation like at the dinner table for you? First of all, dinner was always a focal point to our life. Oh, God. So it sounds like that's familiar for I, you as I well. Mean, it still is. I woke up this morning thinking, what am I eating for dinner? Totally. Like six in the morning. I'm thinking about what's <laughs> going on in 12 hours from now. Yep. So, you know, my mom would always just make these very rich and extensive Syrian dishes. So we'd have a big dinner and there'd always be someone passing through for dinner. So a cousin who lived in town or a cousin who was visiting. A lot of the conversation was around just the navigating two cultures. You know, my parents loved what we were introduced to in U.S. and American culture, but they held on firm to the values they grew up with that were so important to them, like family at the center of everything. So a lot of our conversation and debate was them navigating these two cultures and seeing their kids exposed to certain things that made them worry. And then my dad was a small business owner. He owned his medical practice and ran his medical practice. And so a lot of our conversation was around the challenges of running a small business. Wow. That's amazing. Did you feel like you got it the hardest because... You were the oldest of all the siblings growing up in an American culture that was very different than your parents' culture in the Middle East. I wonder, did you go through the school of hard knocks a little bit where they just couldn't understand some of the things that you experienced in your adolescence? I had some of it, but my sisters were more rebellious than I was. So they pushed on the limits so much harder than I did. I had some of it, but I think my sisters were bolder in what they pushed on. And I was very much focused on school and schoolwork. And so they were always teasing me that I was just had my head in the books as opposed to just paying attention to anything else. So so they pushed harder than I did. Yeah. Watching your dad start and build a small business in the country, that must have been very difficult for him. And if you heard him talking about that at the dinner table, I wonder, like, what did that teach you? What was that reflection like for you? Probably even not even realizing it was such an impactful learning moment. He is just so matter of fact and so decisive that coming in new to a country and building a business, I didn't hear as much of that from him. I saw the way he ran the business, which was with tremendous energy. So I'd go into his office. I worked there a couple summers as I was growing up. And he'd find a way to fit 40 or 60 patients on any given day because he was able to quickly identify what the issue was and diagnose it and and keep going. So he brought that energy. He was also very, very active in his medical community, both with the hospital that he worked in. So he was constantly getting the doctors together, you know, as the chief of staff and then founding organizations to address changes in medical policy. And that really shaped my thinking about how you organize and drive change. 
And then he was very active in the part of the Syrian community, mobilizing them as a doctor to create organizations that would support medicine in the Arab world. And so I watched all of that. But it was less about he struggled, of course, with receivables. I understood receivables at the age of 10 because <laughs> of the challenges and employees. But I saw so many other aspects of how he was running the business that shaped me. So obviously the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I wonder, do you take pride in doing a lot of things. I can't help but ask. A lot of people told me that it's unbelievable how many things you can do. But I wonder for you, is that a source of pride? Maybe the energy is and all of my siblings have it. I mean, we all do very different things, but it's amazing the speed with which we run through life. But so much what I've got from watching my two parents was a sense of purpose and commitment to the causes that I care about, whether it's in work or the work I do with my nonprofit or my family. And so I think it's less about the pride of doing a lot, though I love the energy that comes with it. But it's certainly, I got a lot of that sense of that's how you lead a fulfilling life. The energy that comes with it, meaning, do you have a lot of energy, therefore you have to do a lot? Or does doing a lot give you more energy? I get energy from making decisions quickly and seeing progress move quickly. So I love a busy day that I accomplish a lot during and it gives me tremendous energy. But the source of the energy comes from doing meaningful work that I really care about. But I do get a lot of energy making a lot of impact with speed. That gives me tremendous energy. Yeah. And does this energy, is it consistent amongst all the things that you do in your life or are you particularly energetic about your work? It is consistent because I've curated what I do. So there were many times in my career early on when I was working very hard to identify where I would get my energy, where I didn't have that energy in work. And I was very careful to pause and diagnose and say, how close is this to my purpose? And even sometimes in my current job, which I absolutely love and don't even think of it as a job, there were moments that were harder and I'm very careful to pause and understand how I'm feeling and take action based on it. So as a result, the things I do today give me tremendous energy, but that's the result of really working through those decisions to get to that. I'm glad you said that because my original observation was that the slope of your career is like nothing I've ever seen. Meaning the way that you from Google to Intuit to now being the CEO of MailChimp, that ascension in less than 12 years is stunning with a couple kids along the way. What I later realized as I was digging in more was you went to Harvard, then you did iBanking, then you went to McKinsey, and then to be a consultant, then you went back to Harvard to get two degrees? Such an overachiever. I was looking for my Such. meaning and purpose in life at the time. Right, right. Okay, and this is my point. So then you get two, you get your MBA and your master's in public administration. Then you go back to McKinsey and it still felt to me like you were searching. That's very true. I was searching. Point. And so this is 10 years out of graduating. 10 years. So you were 30, 31 still. Somewhere in that range. Somewhere, somewhere. <laughs> but, but point being, you were past chapter one of your career and you still hadn't exactly figured it out. Did that infuriate you? No, I think a lot of people still haven't figured it out. And it's the difference between why I have so much energy now because I've worked so hard at it with every stage and why others may have less energy around things like this. But I kept getting closer and closer each part of the way. And I'm so grateful for all of those choices. They all helped me. So it didn't infuriate me. It was... Are you sure? I think so. I Are th you sure? <laughs> this, isn't the recon like, this isn't the reconstructed narrative that you tell yourself? I mean, possibly this is a good I, conversation. I, are you sure? I felt like 
like I was getting warmer and warmer every stage. So I was feeling better, but tell me. The reason I ask is mainly because your energy, to your point, is boundless because it's applied. Right. And it's applied in a way that gives you satisfaction and meaning. That's right. And I think the reason that I ask about the frustration is because when you describe that energy... I imagine it's particularly frustrating if you feel like it's wasted energy, if you feel like it's calories going to a place that ultimately isn't contributing to something meaningful, to your career, to something that's advancing the long-term orientation of what you want to do. That's why I ask. I totally hear you. At the same time, any role that you take on, if you have the right mindset, you find how that work can be applied to positive impact. It's just not maximized or optimized. And so there were many steps along the way that were so valuable. And I got energy from the experience. So in investment banking, I didn't get energy from the work because it wasn't my calling, but I got energy from learning and pushing myself in really uncomfortable ways. And so that was energizing. In Dubai, when I worked at McKinsey the first time, that was life-shaping. And that was a very energizing moment because I was starting to get closer to what drives my passion, which is working to create economic opportunities for people through some of the work that you can do through technology and private sector-led growth. So that was very energizing. But each experience had a different meaning and a different lesson. But it wasn't certainly optimized and it wasn't maximized. But deep down, I mean, nobody's going Harvard, 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 doubling down on advanced degrees without some version of striving for finding something. That's right. Right? And in that striving, in that search for, I hate search for meaning, but I'm going to use it. In the search for meaning, there wasn't, frustration? There was some frustration and there was lack of, I always did well, but did I achieve the same outcomes that I am today? No, because it wasn't the right application of it all. But it was getting closer and closer. So for example, I graduated from college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went to investment banking because that's what the most prestigious, hard thing to do was at the time when I graduated. So that's the direction I took. It was a great decision because I learned a ton in that moment and it made me stronger. And so I would have done it again, even if it weren't perfectly aligned. But at the time, I had no idea what I wanted to do for grad school. And so all the people in investment banking were laughing at the number of standardized tests I was taking. I was taking the LSAT. I was doing all this stuff to figure out what I wanted to do next. When I went to Dubai... And I saw the opportunity to shape the Arab world, underserved communities through economic development, which was private sector led. That was what made me choose to go to the business school and the Kennedy School, because I then formed an opinion that I wanted to just transform economies and I wanted to create opportunities for people and that I would do it through private sector led growth and ultimately at the end of it all, take a role in public policy. And so that's why I decided to combine the degrees. So I was getting closer to what I wanted to do, but I started off coming out of college quite broad, as you're imagining and guessing. That makes sense. And can I revisit a comment that you just made? Basically, the way that I heard heard the comment was you were underachieving because you didn't have the right sense of purpose. Could you unpack that? And if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, please tell me. I think you become great, exceptional when you figure out the intersection of what you deeply care about that you will fight so incredibly hard for and you connect it to what you're naturally great at. And that's when you become just unstoppable. And so before that, I was doing quite well and always performing well in any role I was in, but it was more mechanical. It didn't have those elements. And when you find something, why do you feel unstoppable? Number one, the passion to drive that change. Yeah. And number two, I think we're all driven in a certain way. We're wired in a certain way and we're exceptional in a certain way. And you have to figure out what that is. In strategy consulting, I think it's people who are love 
ideation and big ideas and thinking about frameworks and guiding and providing advice. And I was very much wired to be obsessed with impact and being accountable and driving end-to-end change and seeing the results of my perspectives and knowing that I was either going to fail or succeed based on them. I wanted that so deeply. So I think it comes down to getting the depth of understanding around that. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm super curious. What takes energy from you? Lack of decisiveness. When we have conversations that don't go somewhere, that is very draining for me. And I intervene and find a way to drive that. But that's very draining. I'm very motivated by progress. Sometimes it helps to slow down and have the deeper, longer conversations in order to get to the right outcome. And that speeds us up. And so I've learned to slow down for those things. And they're very valuable. But in general, anything that is unnecessary obstacles or delays drags my energy a lot. But I have increasingly, I don't feel blocked by those things anymore because I can drive them and change them. If an organization is slowed down, I have all the tools to change it. Yeah. What else? What else in your personal life takes energy from you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really spend a lot of time on things that take energy from me. Okay. Let me ask this a different way. You're telling me a hundred percent of your day personally and professionally is energy giving, not taking. There is no tax that you pay personally or professionally. There's no tax? Maybe it's that I'm constantly half glass full. And so things that are draining are things that affect people around me. I get a lot of energy by seeing the people I work with motivated and energized. It is so important to me. So I'm speaking in the professional side, but it's what takes a lot of my energy and will keep me up at night. And when I see an interaction I had with someone that brought them down or took down their energy, or I see an organizational construct that is bringing down the team, that really takes a toll on me because I believe a huge part of what I do is motivate people to do exceptional, extraordinary work. I feel the accountability associated with that. So that type of thing really takes energy from me. I also just have a very high bar for everything I do in my life, whether it's a personal interaction and the impact I have on a friend inadvertently, or the impact I have in leading a team if it's less exceptional from the strategy or business outcomes than I would hope for. And I am constantly evaluating myself how that interaction went and hypersensitive to the impact I had on a friend or a family member or somebody else. I replay those things a lot. I've learned to take action pretty quickly. I don't like to let things sit. And so I'll reach out or address it as fast as I can because I it's too heavy when it sits. I feel the exact same way. But has that ever gotten you into trouble in the sense that sometimes it's best to let fires burn as opposed to trying to be the one that extinguishes all of them? Possibly. Sure. Yes, for sure. It's really good to sleep on things. Yeah. And it's really good that my kids distract me from otherwise, you know, taking, you know, exactly for sure. Um, So I always say having my evenings with the children is my best attempt to avoid some of that career limiting moves and behaviors because it stops me in my in my tracks. (laughs) When you went to Google. So this is, let's say, 10 ish years after graduating. Did you feel like you were dangerously close to that energy, to the real purpose that you were looking for? Not yet. Not yet. I knew by the time I left my second round at McKinsey that I desperately wanted to get into the operating world, that I wanted that direct accountability, and I wanted to see the impact I personally drove on the things I led. But it was my first role in a company as an operator. And so I didn't expect to go in and figure it out. I had so much to learn and to experience. And so Google was an amazing first place to land. I learned so much about how you 
just lead the world and industry with ambition and what technology can deliver and do. And I loved being a part of that. I loved the push towards 10x thinking, but it certainly didn't solve all those problems. And the challenge with Google is that you own a piece of the business and the opportunity, but you don't own it end to end. And so even though I learned a lot and I grew a lot and I observed a lot, which was so meaningful for me, I wasn't able to address that need I had. And the need that you have of owning things end to end, why? I'm just driven that way. I want, I like think I- the control I, of it? I think I deeply want the accountability. I want to know if the recommendation or the strategy that I'm coming up with is actually the right one and going to make a difference. And unless I can see the outcome and the end result, I'm always going to question, was it implemented the right way? Was it actually as impactful as I thought it was? And I'm very hungry to see the impact of that. Yeah, I get that. I deeply, deeply resonate with that. One of the things that I struggle with is that I also feel the need to control everything. But I've started to realize more and more that it feels at times like an illusion of control, meaning I actually have no ability to exert influence on things. And in some cases, I probably make things worse rather than better. Does that ever cross your mind? Well, yes. And I have learned a lot about the beauty of multiple people jointly owning something and what can come of it if you harness that beauty. So at Intuit, what's amazing is we really do have a structure that's set up to give you massive amounts of accountability and responsibility. And I have learned so much as a result, but it's not everything. And so there's different functions that own a part of the area that you own and you lead. And there's so many dependencies as we've become a platform company where you need others to do that. And so at the beginning, it can be very stressful that you need to integrate. But I have learned to say... If somebody else is obsessed with the same outcome and they're incredibly talented and we all see the same vision for it, it can actually be brilliant. So I think when I look at it that way, I do better. Yeah, I, I ask because even when we started talking, yeah. you're like, no, 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 that was a bad start. Let's do, <laughs> let's redo it, let's redo it. I'm like, wait, there's no bad start, you know? But I think under this illusion of control, right, at least for me, I paint this outcome in my head yeah. and then I march very deliberately towards that outcome. And when things maybe don't go exactly how I imagined it, my inner equilibrium is easily triggered. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates at all. It does, especially the idea of an inner equilibrium easily triggered. And that is something I've learned to control a lot over time, which is how am I emotionally reacting to something and how do I get myself back to equilibrium very quickly yeah. um, when something goes out of the plan? Yeah, I've been obsessed with this idea that we're the only animal that can create space between stimulus and response. Everybody else yep, yep. has to react immediately. And I wonder for you, how did you learn that? I've learned that a lot over the years. I remember the first time I got feedback at McKinsey and feedback is a huge thing at McKinsey. You get feedback like every day and they at are least every week. about it, right? Ruthless. And I remember, and it's such a constructive thing because it's meant to make you better and we get training on how to give feedback. But the first time I got feedback, I called my mom and I said, mom, it's as if somebody was stabbing me repeatedly in the gut. And it was very gentle feedback at the time, but that's how it felt to me. And so that's where I started. And so I've evolved quite a bit, especially in the last few years where at Intuit, the responsibility is so big and it keeps getting bigger and bigger that I have failed many times on little levels, on big levels. And as I've gone through more and more of it, I look for pattern recognition to talk myself into getting back to equilibrium faster because that's so important. Because if you have a very high bar for yourself and you fail because you're taking on bigger and bigger risks, you will have those many of those moments like every week. And so I now remind myself, remember back in that moment 
back two years ago when this happened. And this is what the aftermath of that experience looked like. And this is how you actually turned a hard situation into a great situation. So I try to reason with myself. And generally, it's been working very well. So it's I think having been through so much of this and figuring out some of that has helped me. And let me ask you, why is it important for you to have a consistent inner equilibrium? So important because you have to maintain that sense of confidence on what you can add to the team and to the equation and always go into things with confidence. You don't want to be sitting there second guessing yourself on, can I add transformative outcomes and can I deliver this Herculean challenge and can we get there? You need to have that confidence that you can do it and see your strength. And so that is why I've learned it's important to do that. Yeah. The question that I've started to ask myself when I feel triggered is how could this be good? I ask myself that question every single time there's something that happens that starts to tip me over, I try and, even if it's tiny, find how this could be good or serve me. I love that. And then I've also been thinking in the last you know, few weeks and months that nothing is a one-act show. You have a bad start to an experience, but then there's several other moments in that experience. And so how do you turn it into a good thing? Through some of that is something I've also been thinking about. One of the things, like you're the CEO of MailChimp, because I spent $12 billion on this company, it's a big company, it's a big job. I was surprised in doing my research that there is very little public anything you've done. I think you've done one six-minute video with NASDAQ or one of those financial institutions. Why? Well, first of all, that's interesting. I think we've done several things. I didn't see that much. That's interesting. Did you see more about money or some of the things we've done earlier? Yes, some of the things you've done earlier. So I think it's probably just a catch-up. It wasn't deliberate or anything okay. like that. There is so much going on on the MailChimp side yeah. in terms of the opportunity ahead of us and laying the roadmap for the innovation and what we're bringing. So I don't think it was deliberate or anything like that. I would have actually thought there were you know more than, more things. Than yeah, that. okay, good. Oh, yeah. well, here I was thinking maybe this was a special <laughs> thing for us, no. but nope, I was wrong. I'm going to hearken back to the Intuit ride because it seems like that's when the slope really became meaningful. How nervous were you when they handed you the keys to this very expensive, nice, shiny car that they just bought? On the MailChimp side? Yes. Seriously. Come on. Well, it was a big challenge. Number one, we have absolutely massive ambitions for what's possible with MailChimp from a customer innovation and growth perspective. And two, any integration, any acquisition is so challenging. Oh, yeah. As we know from history and so many massive acquisitions that have been done and, you know, even at Intuit. And then we had a massive ambition around having MailChimp drive international growth for Intuit. So that's another massive challenge. So certainly the there was a lot there. I have confidence in going into it. So it's an interesting question. I have seen us take on so many challenges at Intuit in my time here, things that scared me to death. You know, I came in to build our lending business and that was a huge challenge. It was so far from the type of businesses Intuit had been in. It required tapping into our data in ways that we hadn't before at the time. It pushed me into a completely new area that I'd never led before. That was very intimidating. I then had to go take our payments business, which was a large established business at the time, and completely transform it, which was so challenging. So I'd seen us go through so much, and I had learned so much as a leader in that time, and each of those moments and experiences were terrifying for me as I jumped into them. But I jumped in completely into each one, but I had seen the strength of what Intuit could do. And so I was ready to harness that strength. I had such confidence in the leadership team and the capabilities we had built, and I I believe everything is possible. I'm one of those people that just sees a goal and becomes 
completely confident that we can go after it. So I know it was a big challenge, but I'd been through a lot in the last seven years at Intuit. Of those challenges, which one felt the worst? Where you came home and you actually maybe had no energy? (laughs) Obviously, the pieces around the people and the operating rhythm we want to set for MailChimp is a huge part of that transformation. And with any integration, you want to both bring out the best of the organization that they're joining, which is the Intuit side, but also maintain some of what makes MailChimp so special. And you want to create that sense of confidence Mm -hmm. and trust with the employees. And there's a lot of change you need to push through to get to the next chapter of Extraordinary. MailChimp had achieved so much that was extraordinary in its first two decades as a company. And the next chapter, the vision we have for it and that MailChimp has for itself is just exceptional. And so the people change was a big part of that. Yeah daunting component. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm so curious. You've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, ten promotions in 10 years at amazing companies. How much are you asking versus how much are you just being tapped? It's a combination. I certainly get tapped a lot, but I certainly actively manage my career as well. So the conversations I've had with my boss since I joined, and he's amazing, Alex Chris, who runs with the small business team. I spoke it. with him. He yeah. is amazing, and he thinks very highly of you. Yeah, and I've had the fortune of working with him for the seven years I joined, which is very unique and special to have that experience. But I've been very vocal along the way, too, about when I was ready to take on more and you know my own growth ambitions and what I wanted to do. So it's a, certainly a combination. I'd say it's been equal, both where we had a big need as a business and we needed someone to come in and take on more. And other times where I've said, I'd love to do more and here's what I'd love to do. And I've learned to do more of that as I've grown in my career. That was the outcome of some active work with a coach earlier on where they said, people may not see what you need to do or want to do. You need to talk about it actively. So Bill McDermott calls that registering his ambition. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you tastefully register your ambition? How do you do it in a way that feels both aligned for you and the company in a way that doesn't feel threatening, but also in a way that shows that you have the capacity and the will to take on more? I love that question. And I think it's so important because, first of all, you have a conversation early. You don't have the conversation when you're out the door. You have the conversation early, which demonstrates that it's a partnership and you're working together to figure it out. Secondly, it's a two-way conversation. I've had many times in my career where I've talked to people I work with and say, I'm ready for more. And they say you have more opportunity in the part you're currently leading. And let me tell you why. And so you listen and you learn and you grow by hearing that. And so it might change your perspective. So that's another piece of it. And then I always talk about wanting to do more rather than necessarily a promotion, but I am ready to do more. Help. What is your view on that? How could, what could that look like? Yeah. And when others have the conversation with you on your team, how do you receive it best? Similar to that? Similar to that, it's a conversation and a dialogue. I often raise it early with my team. I always want to know what's on their minds. And so I'm very cognizant of what they want to do. I remember like you're poking them for it. I'm constantly wanting, especially looking at them in the eye and understanding what's top of mind for them and what's going on. So I'm very proactive in that because I never, I feel I owe it to people to help them grow in their careers and do more. And so I want to constantly have a pulse on what's important to people on, for my, people on my team. I must not be an outlier to say the first time I heard of MailChimp was... And of course, I have to say this because I'm, I'm, we're doing a podcast, but on the Serial podcast, 
Yeah. That was genius. So genius. Can we just acknowledge how smart that was? So smart. And it was this one in many of a series of genius things that MailChimp did to get where it got to. Can you tell what we're talking about? Sure. Well, MailChimp was very early. And what does MailChimp do? Maybe you could take a second to explain that. MailChimp is a powerhouse when it comes to marketing automation, specifically email provider for small businesses today. But it is a leading small business SaaS platform that helps small businesses use email to manage their customers, to find new customers, to manage their existing customers. So that's what MailChimp does today. In terms of Serial, it was one of many exceptional, brilliant moves on behalf of the MailChimp team, but that was sponsoring the podcast. It was one of the earlier podcasts. MailChimp got in and sponsored it. And one of the amazing things was MailChimp left room at the time for the Serial team to come up with what that pre-show little ad space would look like. And on the streets, the Serial team decided to go interview a bunch of people on the street and say, what do you think about MailChimp? And then one woman said, MailCamp. And that became one of the things that people always remember with that podcast. But it was one of many extraordinary moves. I mean, at a time, MailChimp was giving away hats, chimp hats for cats. And that became a huge thing. MailChimp led the freemium model as one of the first players in all of that. So there's rarely a person I come up to and talk to that doesn't know the MailChimp brand and doesn't deeply admire the MailChimp brand. So So cool. Yeah, it's so cool. Does it weigh heavy on you to preserve that scrappiness inside a large organization like Intuit? It's a big topic on the minds of the MailChimp team. They are both of course. so hungry and eager to get all the amazing things that Intuit has. I mean, MailChimp very much wanted to graduate. They wanted the performance culture. They wanted the innovation. They wanted the business results, but they so deeply wanted to connect to the identity that has made them so strong. And so that's a conversation we actively have, which is, you know, Intuit has a very strong culture and there's the values alignment between the two organizations are quite strong, but how do you preserve while also bringing in the best of what Intuit brings to the table. When I say scrappiness, I mean it. Like this is a bootstrap company the whole way. Yeah. And so I bet that there was even more sensitivity because they've always been independent, as independent as independent can get. And so I have to imagine that there is a heightened level of responsibility that you feel to be very communicative and empathetic in that transition. And by the way, the transition is, it's only been six months, right? It's been six months since I started leading the company. It's been a year and three months since we closed the acquisition. For sure, it is. Now, what's amazing is MailChimp is very much retaining that scrappiness. So you might have seen with the Super Bowl, the MailChimp Twitter feed, we basically had AI basically commenting on the entire game. And it was absolutely hilarious in terms of the commentary play by play that the MailChimp feed was driving. Our ad campaign this year was very much about take the guesswork out of advertising. And so you had a dancing rug and just absolutely hilarious activations that came with the brand. So we're very much focused on enabling the team to maintain so much of what got them here while also taking a lot of what Intuit can bring and getting to the next level of great. It is an active conversation that we're working through every day to achieve that. Yeah. Can you tell me the allocation of time and how it's distributed in a given week for you? What are the big buckets of time that you're spending? I'm so curious. A huge part of it is building a world-class team for MailChimp. Like a leadership team. The leadership team and the next level down. Leaders are everything. And as we have worked to complement the extraordinary leaders on the MailChimp side with the leaders we need for the next chapter, I've spent a lot of time on that topic. 
The other topic is on the long-term strategy for growth. We have just tremendous ambition for what we want to do to unleash small businesses with MailChimp. You know, the number one challenge that small businesses face is getting new customers and growing their existing customers. And there is so much work to do on this area. Two-thirds of small businesses say it's their number one challenge. So what can we do to bring leading innovation to that game. And so I've spent a lot of time working on our product roadmap and the long-term strategy that we'll get there. Those two are where I spend a lot of my time. And then the third is delivering the results for the year and what are those priorities and getting the team aligned against them. And in doing that, when you declare the priorities for the year that will deliver the in-year results, it gives you an opportunity to strengthen the operating rhythm of the organization. So as you do that, you have the opportunity to focus on what type of operating rhythm and operating culture do we need to be world-class and drive that momentum. And so that that's how I spend my time. I've heard from several people that when you had a family Things just shapeshifted for how that time all of a sudden had to be reallocated. Can you tell me about that? Totally. totally. Slash, do you agree? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Why do you laugh? Oh my gosh. I mean, it totally had to shift. I remember sitting in the Google offices and you could just sit there and sit there and sit there and you never had to leave and it was great. And I remember when I got married in 2015, I said to myself, I need to find 30% more efficiency. So I never have to give anything up, but I can spend a ton of time with my husband and I can spend a ton of time on all the stuff I do. And then when I had kids, I said, I need to find another 30%. So I was constantly looking for ways to streamline. But yeah, my life has changed a lot. And we talked at the beginning of this conversation on how important family was to me growing up. And the thing that has helped me with balance is having such clarity on what my priorities are. And my family is at the very top of it, the very top. And so how do you find space for that? So I have, again, had to work a system and figure it out. Of course. And, <laughs> of course. and so I always got up early. My dad is an immigrant from a merchant family in Syria. For him, it was we get up at 6 a.m. and we get going. And it sounds like it resonates for you. So That's I used right. to, I, in high school, I learned to get up at 6 a.m. and go. But by the time I had two kids who are five and three, I now get up at four because my morning time between four and seven is when I can be very strategic and it's my time and I can think it all through. And then I've learned to completely stop working at 5.30 and it's an amazing, this is the end of the day and that's it. And I make dinner with my kids, which was so important to me as I grew up. So I, it's so important for me to do that with them now and spend the evening with them. And then I go to bed right after I put them to bed around 8.30. But it's, it's shifted quite a bit. But it's also helped me be super clear about what matters to me. First of all, you wake up at four. That's yeah. pretty intense. Is that how you found 30%? I, I, and frankly, I don't know if I found 30%. I lived in a world where I believed that was possible. The first 30% was probably a lot easier than that's, the third that's, round of 30% right. as my second child was that's born. That's right. That's right. But the 30% has come from being very effective and being able to do things quickly. So I know where my time needs to be spent. And I'm very focused on spending my time on that. So it's never about reacting to things that are coming my way. And it's always about here are the things where I can add value. And so I'm very deliberate in that time between four and seven on how I'm going to move the needle and what's going to empower and enable and amplify teams around me. So that adds leverage. And then being able to quickly connect the dots and understand what's going on to diagnose either how a certain part of business performance is going so I can solve it very quickly. That has helped me a lot. So I don't need to spend hours consuming information. I'm just able to see it through pattern recognition. And then when there is a problem, being very effective in how to solve it. So instead of getting an email scheduled and needing to add 30 minutes to my calendar, I have everyone on my phone for speed dial. And it's just a quick phone call. We get it solved. We move on. And so that creates 
leverage as well. You're a caller. I'm a caller. I'm a caller too. <laughs> I don't know if everybody else in our lives yeah. enjoys the fact that we're callers, but we're callers. Yeah, yeah. It's very fast. And then you're in bed right after the kids are asleep? Sometimes while I'm putting them to sleep. <laughs> My daughter wants to know why I'm sleep why I'm sleeping while I'm reading her a nighttime story. <laughs> and that's at eight thirty nine. Yeah. You're asleep. I'm asleep. And so you do get your six, seven plus hours. Yeah, I believe in that. And honest question, obviously there's exceptions to the rule, but at five thirty you shut it down. Yeah. I imagine that gets broken pretty frequently. Well, I'm not the best at putting my phone away when I'm with my kids because mm-hmm. we're just upset. We all just love constant information. So that's mm-hmm. my fault. But I'm not proactively doing work. And I learned the hard way. Not about the 530 slot. The slot that's harder to avoid is the 830 slot. Coming back to something before you go to bed that's stressful because it's hard to sleep when you've got something on your mind and you've got a big challenging outcome you need to get through. But I learned the hard way that if I do it at night, the quality is going to be half as good than if I do it in the morning when my brain is clear. And then I can't go to sleep because when you're working on something very hard before you sleep, you can't turn it off. So I've tried various things and much better off closing it down than starting. So most days it is 530. Why do you say you learn the hard way? I had a period of time and probably many periods, but a period of time when I um, struggled quite a bit with my system. It was when I had Dara, my son, who's my second child. He was born 10 days into the pandemic and I came back three months later and it was the hardest six to 12 months of my career. But I learned about all the things that don't work well for me. And I had to experiment my way back out of them to get back to stability. And so can you talk about that? Yeah. So much had shifted for me and for the world during those three months that I was gone. You know, I was leading our fintech businesses for small businesses. And what happened in those three months was the opportunity space became 10x larger than before I left because small businesses needed different solutions. They couldn't go to the bank anymore. They needed digital solutions to pay bills. They needed digital solutions to accept payment. And so all the things we'd been working on, they needed our solutions more than ever and they needed them with speed. And you left right at the beginning of COVID? Dara was born March 31st. So I probably oh. left on the 29th wow. or something. So wow. it was literally 10 days into the lockdown. And then three months later, you know how much the world changed. It changed so much. So what I needed to lead through was so much bigger than when I left. Meanwhile, I had a second child. You know, you don't sleep very well during the night. The times that worked so well for me between four and seven, he took over because he wasn't sleeping till 7 a.m. until he was a little older. And so I was totally off balance. And so I was learning to lead in a different way. I wasn't at the top of my game in terms of my own routine. And I started forming all these less than helpful habits, like staying up late into the night and then not being able to sleep and waking up with a headache the next day. So I worked back in terms of new solutions to be able to get back to what worked well for me. I'm curious, what was some of the experimentation that you did, the trial and error during that time so to much. readjust? I, well, first, I couldn't sleep at night. So I tried all of these things to be able to sleep. The funniest one was at one point, I figured if I played The Economist on audio loop, I could fall asleep. <laughs> that was a very bad idea. I was just spinning. That was a crazy idea, but that shows you the degree of experimentation I was trying. (laughs) Um, In the the end, I realized I just needed to stop working at night and start working in the morning. But I tried all these things, but there was a series of just crazy experiments. Sorry to keep harping on this, but I'm just so fascinated. Do you do any physical exercise? Well, when you're a mother of two children and you want to spend every moment either working on work or your kids or your nonprofit. And then, you know, every time your dad calls needing to run home, you have very little time to do all. So I have become comfortable with 
on the weekends, I run around my neighborhood on Saturday and Sunday, and then I do walk in calls. I hate one-on-ones on Zoom. And so whenever I can, whether now it's in the the office or virtually, it's always walking. But don't you feel great about just, even if it's an hour, 45 minutes of walking and talking? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Do you find yourself able to focus even better? For sure, because you get the adrenaline as you go and the energy and clear thinking. Zoom is very hard yeah. to be creative on, Yeah, I find. Yeah. Just the conversation doesn't move as fast as a phone call. Yeah, and you cook with your kids at 5.30? It's chaotic, but you could. it is cooking with my kids. <laughs> Whatever. You're cooking, they're yeah, yeah. throwing things yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. I actually laugh some days because I'll have had a very crazy day at work and it's very intense. And then at 5.30, some days I'm making lamb and an Arabic stew. And I think to myself, this is crazy. But it's also amazing. Oh, I have to come over for, for some food one of these <laughs> that days. Would be Are fun. you kidding me? Okay, so you have the oh shit moment when you come back from COVID. Kids, businesses 10x the size. How did you work your way backwards, independent of routine and time, to settle into the new reality that you were living in? How did I get through that period? Yeah. I think another piece I learned about at that time was the idea we talked about earlier which is you always have to be confident in yourself and your capabilities, regardless of how things are. And that was a moment where I was very hard on myself and really questioned if I was as strategic as I remember myself being and the impact I was able to drive. And I learned at that time how important it was to see the strengths that I could bring to the table and and remain confident in them. So I learned a lot during that period, too, which is helping me so much in challenges as they get bigger and bigger and constantly retaining that confidence and feeling that I can take on any challenge. Yeah. Do people have a hard time feeling in the workplace like they know you? Increasingly, no. I have learned so much about being entirely authentic and genuine and real and sharing so much about myself. And I learned that also during COVID because One of the things I started doing as I got through COVID is I shared more about my experiences during it with people, and I realized how much it helped people, and I then became more comfortable with it. And why didn't you do that before? I was very guarded about it. Why? I always wanted to come off as strong Yeah. and never be associated with anything that wasn't strong. And are your learnings on the other side of some of this vulnerability... How do you relate to perceived strength now, now that you've been opening up a little bit more? I'm curious. I think strength is always good. People want to know that you are going to be a strong leader for them to get them to the outcomes they hope for. And they want to be part of a winning team and an exceptional team. So you have to both demonstrate that strength, but the authenticity helps in a huge way. And so I've learned how valuable that is and how important it is to team members because they want to be part of something that they identify with and knowing a leader that they deeply understand and has similar challenges and approaches the world in a way that they understand, I think helps them feel that sense of connection. I'm really curious and I hope you can answer this honestly, but is there anything you would have done differently in the last six, seven months since, I mean, like you've never been the CEO of MailChimp. You're figuring it out like everybody else. Intuit's never bought MailChimp before this. I'm curious, what would you do differently? I would have done micro moments differently. There's certain events or moments I would have prepared for differently. But I have to say, because I've built a group of 
people around me that I'm constantly tapping for advice along the way. I never go far without stopping and getting people's input. So I get input all the time on what we need to do differently, what I need to do differently. And so I can honestly answer no. There are many, many interactions and moments on an individual level that I would have done entirely differently, but they're almost inconsequential as you look at the last six months because of the conversation I constantly having with people to evaluate, you know, what do we do? And also because of lessons learned from previous experiences. Yeah. Meaning mostly I imagine people challenges, interpersonal dynamics. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. You said advice from people. One of the things that it seems to me that Intuit has figured out is how to pass the baton in a really elegant, seamless way. So Bill Campbell, Scott Cook, previous guest of the show, an absolute superstar. It's hard for me to do this episode without acknowledging Scott because he's so special. So special, extraordinary leader, spends a ton of time with so many leaders across Intuit, ensuring that we stay true to the mission and vision of the organi- of the company and that we're constantly innovating to the full potential possible and just exceptional at human connections as well. Yeah, and when Ben, the founder of MailChimp, decided to step away and let you take the reins, he said that he was inspired by what Scott and Bill and folks at Intuit have done. That must be really cool because it's not always this way. Totally. This is just one example of why I see Intuit as just this incredible leadership lab. One of many. I mean, the way the company is governed and run and the leadership playbook, I have honestly grown and learned so much more in the last seven years than I have in my whole career. And it's just because of the way the organizations run and leadership development and that accountability. And then moments like this through these leadership transitions, which are always so thoughtful and carefully done. I'm curious, when you go to, maybe it's Ben, maybe it's Scott, maybe it's your boss, what is the type of advice that you're seeking Sometimes it's an observation that they have, which is they can step further back and say... Because you're so in the weeds. Yeah. And so here's an observation on a business opportunity that we could think about differently or do differently. So often it's an observation for them. Or for me, it's often, here's some really hard change that we're working on. How might you approach it? And here are some challenges. What's a perspective on how you would think about it? Yeah. Often it's innovation. Here's an ambition we have. We want to build the best customer data platform for our small businesses where all of their data can come into one place and they get a 360 view of their customer. How would you go about harnessing all the capabilities we have as a company to make that happen? And so I spend a lot of time with our technology partners getting into questions like that. Yeah. How do you go about evaluating a leadership team that you, in many cases, inherited that have been doing something independently from you, far away, in a different business, with a very different context. I'm curious, what does that process look like? Because it's very tricky, admittedly, right? You want to make sure, A, you have people that are motivated, B, you have people that are the right fit for Intuit's culture, also MailChimp's, but now Intuit's culture. C, you want to find who are the rising stars and how can you empower them? How can you find the next Rania, right? I just wonder what that process looks like for you. It starts with having tremendous clarity on what we need to do and deliver. So you start with that ambition. What is the next chapter of exceptional for MailChimp? MailChimp's first chapter was exceptional. What does that next chapter look like? And so you define that. And then you get clarity on what the interests of the current leadership team are and what they bring to the table. 
And then you gain conviction in the hard decisions you need to make based on how do you unleash an organization? That's my accountability and responsibility is to create organizations that are going to achieve their full potential. I owe that to the teams we're working with is to create that culture. And so that helps with that change. But, you know, it's just about also connecting with the individuals that Mm. you're working with to understand what they want and what's best for them. And often the conversation. Are there any characteristics or qualities that you're a sucker for? Is there anything in your leadership team that it's not a deal breaker if they don't have it, but if they do, you just can't help but gravitate towards that person because of that thing? So many things. I love people who are just exceptional problem solvers, who are just so ambitious and want to lead in whatever domain they're leading for, but can solve the toughest problem. You know, we've got this roadmap that should take three years and we want to deliver it in six months, which we always find ourselves doing, and they figure out how to do it. So there's no obstacle in the way. I love people who are partnering across together. You know, the type of leadership teams that I think thrive are ones where we collectively have a shared vision and are working together towards the same goals. And these are individuals who are constantly looking for how to connect the dots across teams. So that's also energizing. And then have the courage to make really tough decisions. Mm -hmm. How do you evaluate without having seen them do it before the courage to make those decisions? One of the things I have done that works well is just a playbook in starting to lead a new team. So the first thing I always do is work with the leadership team to identify the priorities that we're going to deliver in, for example, the next year that are non-regrettable foundational priorities that are going to accelerate us no matter what. In that process of defining it and then working together, I get a sense for how the team is operating and what we're doing. You you work with people and you get a sense for those tough decisions. But sometimes some of it's a conversation you have together where you can talk about a tough decision that could unleash an organization and you just see. Kind um, of feel out how they would respond to that. And how they lead through it. And then problem solving, same question. How do you evaluate problem solving? Same thing, you see, you give them a tough problem? Yeah, but I mean, there's tough problems in the work we do every day because we're pushing so hard on the possibilities and the outcomes. So it's by definition, the world we live in and lead. And it is amazing to work with people who solve tough problems. And the tough problems both have to do with their craft, but it certainly has to do with how you mobilize an entire organization to achieve the impossible. It's about how you motivate and inspire teams. And so we are just always pushing so hard on what's possible that by definition, that's part of our work every single day. I have watched videos of you giving interviews. So like one of the videos that I mentioned earlier, you stunned me with the way that you hit Every single talking point sequentially with seemingly no cues because you could just tell that it was so buttoned up. And I was thinking she must have spent forever preparing for this. And by the way, I am not the only person that's had that observation. What the heck is up with that? That is the outcome of constraint. I have a visual impairment. I was born without great vision. And it turns out that that has been one of the strongest components of how I've grown and led my life. So one of those things, I mean, the very simple application of that is I can never see speaker's notes. So if I'm giving a presentation or a large session or even just looking at a deck on a screen, it's very hard for me to see it. And so I just think very much in my mind, what's the talk track? What do I need to deliver? But if I'm giving a keynote speech or something, I literally have to memorize the entire thing. The whole thing. And so I just have bullets and it's somewhat unstructured. But when I started out giving talks like that, I was memorizing it. And then I got very comfortable with just an outline and going with it. 
But that has also played a big role in so much of my worldview. My dad, when I was growing up, pushed me so hard to never let anything stand in my way. He never, my mom and dad never wanted anything to stand in my way. And so when it came to driving, many thought I wouldn't be able to drive. He took me out every night for almost a year. And so did my mom until I was comfortable actually driving. And so that idea that nothing can stand in my way is in many ways the outcome of that. Can you drive? Yeah, I, I drive, but <laughs> you drive. Yeah, but it's I um I, yeah, it's not the best, but I drive. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of fun stories on that for another time. <laughs> and you if you have a presentation that you're doing, the video that I saw yeah. was on, I think on Zoom. Yeah. And the speaker is on the screen there. The notes right in front of oh, you. Oh yeah, no. Not a chance. Not at all. Really? Yeah. And so what's it called? Is it, and have you had it since you were a kid? Oh, were, yeah. you, were you born with it? Yeah, I was born with it. Ocular albinism. It's just a retina challenge. Are you insecure about it? I'm not insecure at all, but I am conscious that it's one of the first things people sometimes think of me when they, if I tell them about it. And so I've been careful in sharing it's it. It's like one of those vulnerability weakness type things. I just want, it doesn't define me. It's not who I am. It's just, you know. You want to be judged and measured by the quality of work and basically nothing else. Yeah, and people give it more space than it deserves. It's like not a big deal except a point of strength in my view. And so I never want to give, I, I just don't want others to attribute more to. That is my identity. And how do you learn? I guess it's, it must be very difficult to read books and stuff. Oh, no, it's not difficult. It's not? No, no, not Oh, no. it's fine. It's just... I mean, of course, it's more challenging for me to read than somebody else, but I've lived with it my whole life and I've got things very close to my face as a result because I have to hold it very close. But no, you know, it's made me stronger because I have to listen. I have to use all my other senses. So I can see and understand everything happening in the world around me because I'm making up for other areas that are weaker. So you just find ways to address it and deal with it. Yeah, this is kind of a... Weird question, but do you get less nervous when you get on stage giving a keynote speech? Because a lot of the time what people attribute nerves to is seeing everybody everywhere. And you've got better eye contact and you're not looking down. And so there's many strengths in it when you address some of the challenges. But yeah, in general, for sure. Wow. I'm just curious, like where else is it annoying? Where else does it show up that I'm not thinking of? It's a situation all the time. I mean, when you're giving a talk, you can't necessarily see the entire room to understand their dynamics or what's happening. You know, even passing employees in the hallway, it takes me a little bit of time to realize who I just passed. And so, of course, there's that. It's present. But to be honest, I almost I don't think about it that much because I genuinely, genuinely believe that it is one of the things I'm most grateful for because it has made me so strong in so many ways. And so, yeah, it reminds me of how could this be good? Yeah. Yeah. Your team knows, though. I mean, I don't talk about it that much, but yeah, I mention it every once in a while. Your team doesn't know. I'm sure they do. I mean, they see, you know. How often do you go through a reprioritization process for you, for Ranyo? Do you do a Sunday night thing that's weekly? Do you go through on a quarterly cadence? Are you a morning 4 a.m. checklist person? How does the prioritization matrix process work for you? In my personal to-do list, it starts with what are the headlines we'll deliver at the end of the year. So I'm very clear on those things in terms of what I want to do from a business perspective. And that's actually the top of my to-do list, which is a running document. That's what I open up on Monday morning to lay out what are the things that matter most on that week. And they constantly anchor back to the very big headlines that we're driving for the year. So that's an anchor for me. 
And sometimes I reevaluate those, but I think that they're generally pretty consistent in terms of big boulders that we want to achieve. And then weekly, I've got a pretty good sense for what matters most. But at the beginning of every week, I'm just very clear with myself on what matters most for that week. So I've got a pretty good sense of the longer term work we need to do, but there's constant evaluation of any opportunities we see along the way that we can lean into. Yeah, that makes sense. And the big boulders, those are annual priorities that you're setting out? Yeah. They're often three-year goals with a big annual milestone along the way. Okay. And do you feel pressure to put points on the board? Tremendous pressure. One of the things I have led through and into it, and one of the things my team has been most active in is bringing new products to market, either new to the world products or new products for Intuit. We've been very successful in bringing out these new offerings. So we launched QuickBooks Capital, which was a direct lending offering. We then launched Get Paid Upfront, which is an ability to get paid instantly on an invoice that you sent. We launched a checking account faster than almost anyone else in the industry in terms of getting it to market. We just launched a B2B payments network, which we're incredibly excited about. We're working on bill pays. So we've launched all these new products. And now, you know, the list is very exciting on the MailChimp side. But I very much think about it as this is an internally funded startup and we have investors and we need to put points on the board very frequently to demonstrate that need to keep funding it. And we're very strategic about what points we need to put on the board. It's not just about customers or revenue. It's about proving the largest leap of faith assumption that justifies this as a massive growth opportunity and serving customers and driving revenue growth. And so I very much think about what points matter and then how you demonstrate them quickly. Yeah. Do you ever feel like a prisoner of your own calendar? I have talked to several executives that run very meaningful businesses at large organizations. And sometimes they've lamented to me that it feels that when you probably open up your calendar and at 7 a.m. on Monday until 5 p.m. on Friday, it's fairly scheduled for you? Or do you have an ability to create space to take on projects and initiatives that align to the big boulders? I love that question. I feel tremendous agency over my calendar in two ways. One is an individual. So I tell my teams one of the things I love most is decline, 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 decline. I get a lot of energy from that. And I literally look at my calendar and think this meeting will give me energy and this meeting will not. And there's a lot of meetings that don't give me energy and I don't go to those meetings. And it depends on am I an active participant that's shaping the outcome or am I not? And I think we as a company are increasingly encouraging all people to think that way about their calendar. But the second reason I feel I have agency over my calendar, and one of the reasons I've loved the role at MailChimp, is we have the opportunity to shape our operating rhythm and our culture. So do we need all these check-in meetings on each of our priorities constantly that are just scheduled in a rhythm that require so many preparation meetings for the check-in meeting with me and our leadership team? Or do we move to an asynchronous model where we've got a document that teams are updating that we can constantly see the weekly status of, and then we can call for a meeting if there's a reason to go deeper and problem solve and ideate with the team. So that is incredibly inspiring because I believe large companies struggle with the operating rhythm that unleashes talent, and it is so fun to be able to architect that right now. One of the experiments that I thought was fascinating that I'd be curious to hear your take on is Shopify. Yeah, I saw that. Where they got rid of all their standing meetings, yeah. right? Yeah. At the beginning of this year, yeah. default to remove all standard meetings from everybody's calendar and they have to go and add them back if they're useful. What do you think would happen if you did that? I think it's a great way to shock the system. And that's the type of thing you need to shock 
because it's so easy to have so many meetings and to make incremental improvement as you call for change. And that's just a great way to just go extreme and then have to build it back up. So I'm very excited to see how the experiment goes. Do you have any shock the system ideas that you're excited to potentially do? Or is this more of a let's not do anything to rock the boat too much right now? I think a lot of what we're doing and in all the organizations I've led is focused on those big decisive decisions. One is where do we focus on growth when it comes to headcount? We're growing as an organization and what are the functions that are going to dramatically accelerate growth and leaning into those and making tough calls in other areas. So there's so much that is exciting to think about very boldly that you need to lead through if you want to drive transformational change. Yeah. I can't wait to see what you do with this company. I mean, we're incredibly excited. I cannot wait on the hiring piece. Are you hiring for any specific roles that you want to shout out any key functions on your leadership team? We're hiring a lot throughout the organization, and there are some on the leadership team, particularly in Atlanta, where we have an amazing headquarters. So call out there and then Brooklyn as well. So there's lots of roles. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? I think of very bold ambition. So a very high bar. I think of confidence that you can achieve no matter how hard the bar and then relentless picking yourself back up when it doesn't go as planned to get there. Rania, thank you. Thank you, Juven. This was fun. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 